Let's go ahead and dig into this. I think it's going to be pretty uh, convicting and hopefully encouraging at the same time. I have a question for you. Are you a truth teller? Now, let's really, really do justice with that. Are you really a truth teller? Do you tell the truth all the time? Or do you shade it? You know, when somebody is uh, confronting you or you're in trouble at work or they're holding you accountable for something, do you shade it so that you look a little bit better than you really truly are and maybe somebody else looks a little bit worse than what they truly are? Do you engineer conversations? Now listen, you have to see this in your heart and the gospel will show you this. Do you engineer conversations maneuvering it, maybe even subtly manipulating them until you get the praise that you're looking for. Man, I tell you, that's deadly. Probably most of us do that. Are you a truth teller? Do you make promises that you will fulfill no matter what the cost is to you? Well, it was, it was 1737, and William Penn, he had died he was extremely instrumental in our area. He was a friend to the Indians. His sons, however, he had two sons, two boys, John and Thomas. They were very much alive in 1737 and in financial trouble. Here's why they were in financial trouble. They had begun selling tracts of land where you and I live except they hadn't yet acquired the land from the Delaware Indians known as the Lenny Lenape Indians. So they've got all these promises, they've been paid all this money, yet they haven't yet acquired legally this land. So what are they going to do? Well, they went into partnership with the secretary of Pennsylvania. His name was James Logan. And James Logan was in a very similar situation. He had purchased large tracts of land, very wealthy, in Bucks County as well as Lehigh Valley, but he needed that agreement with the Lenape Indians before they would allow colonialists to be able to settle in there. He couldn't get them to settle. So in a scheme to get more land, the Penn brothers and Logan put a plan together. They presented a copy of an unsigned deed insisting that William Penn, their father, had purchased the land from the Delaware Indians, but had not yet paid for it because the amount of land had never been measured off to the satisfaction of both buyer and seller. Enough time had passed that all the witnesses to the unsigned deed had died in the land that had been desired by William Penn. It had been settled by the Lenape Indians. Their families were there. But Logan and the Penn brothers needed the land. They pressed their supposed legal claim upon the Lenape Indians, and they appealed to the Iroquois. The Iroquois are up north, up in the New York area. They were stronger than the Delaware Indians. And so they appealed to the Iroquois, and the Iroquois didn't like the Lenape Indians, so they came down in a group of their leaders, and they ruled against the Lenape Indians, and finally pressured the leaders of the Lenape agreed to the sale. Having been shown a map 
with a dotted line indicating the land that would be purchased, and it would be south of the Lehigh River, Upper Bucks, today Upper Bucks, and it wouldn't require the Lenape to even move from their settlements in the Lehigh Valley, and particularly the eastern area. It would be as much land as they could walk in a day and a half, and the parties finally signed the deal. Now, I will tell you the rest of that story at the end of this message, but I want to underscore, we live in a day of broken promises. We even have something now that I never, ever, ever heard before really a year and a half ago, fake news. That was nothing ever prevalent when I was a kid. We have scandalous oaths. We have information leaks. You saw some of that, I'm sure, this last week. And it's been happening, this, this scandalous lack of truth, it's been happening since Satan, who is called the father of lies in John chapter 8, the deceiver of the whole world, Revelation 12. Since he came on the biblical scene in Genesis 3, we've had lies. And all of us, now let's be really clear on this, all of us have mimicked Satan's ways. This is a major parenting principle that we have taught every one of our children. If you lie, then your father of lies is influencing you. If you're a Christian, your father is God. But even when a Christian lies, Satan is influencing you. You must not be like Satan. We must be truth tellers. But we've all mimicked his ways. We've all artfully dressed lies and half-truths. So let me even right at the beginning, just get your attention for a second. You ready? Just if, if you're writing down, if you're taking notes, maybe this would be worthy to lodge in your memory or write it down on paper. A half-truth is always a full lie. Now let's just think through that for a second. A half-truth is always a full lie. Let me even make that a little bit more. 95% truth is 100% lie. Now, we don't think like that, typically. And you can do this enough to where it no longer really bothers your conscience. You could tell somebody who's suffering, you know what, I'm going to pray for you, and you know, you know, that you're probably not going to remember, so right then, to yourself, you utter a prayer. See, God, I kept my oath. But is that really keeping the truth? Lying is so pandemic that Paul would say this in Romans 3, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Now listen, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips. Yet David, in one of my favorite verses, yet David said of God, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. So what delights God is when his children, that would be every Christian and nobody from the world. There is no non-believer anywhere in the Bible called the child of God. You got to remember that because I hear Christians say all the time, everybody's a child of God. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible only calls Christians, true believers, the children of God. So what delights God, our heavenly father, is that his children speak truth. That truth is all woven into our hearts. 
Now, parents, you get this, right? You absolutely get this. I know you do, because when your child will come unsolicited and unbidden to come and confess something that they had done, you know it delights you because you're seeing integrity. You're seeing holiness at work at the heart. The same is true for God our Father. He delights in truth in the inward being. Our King, Jesus, wants truth-loving, truth-living disciples. And this, this sermon, these verses, starting in verse 33, is going to show us just how much he cares for that. Now, I want you to remember for a second, we're actually in the Sermon on the Mount. We're not in the Beatitudes. We're in six conducts that every disciple of Christ ought to be living. And we've been looking at these. We're at the fourth one today. The first one he taught us is to see that very angry, contemptuous, slanderous people are heart murderers. That's what murder begins with. The roots of murder begin in the hearts. And it, be, and, it, and it begins with excessive ungodly anger, contempt, and slander. So when you judge somebody, the Bible says you're a murderer. When you slander somebody, the Bible says I'm a murderer. When we get angry uncommonly and unrighteously, the Bible says we're a murderer. And then Jesus went to the second one. Adultery is committed by way more than just a physical act. It's with a heart of lust. He went to the third one. That his disciples must hold marriage in the highest regard that divorce and remarriage are not to be ever lightly considered. The Bible is absolutely clear. I hope the last two weeks, as difficult as it might have been for you, you can at least come away saying the Bible is clear. God knows what he's talking about. There is grace available. And that grace is most available to keep your marriage strong. But when we come to the fourth one, now listen, I have to be really honest with you, because I know, I know that some of you probably share my sentiments. You come to this fourth one, it's like a snoozer. I mean, this has been really exciting until this one. It just seems archaic. It seems irrelevant. We might actually be tempted to walk out of here after this message thinking, well, that doesn't really apply to me. So let's look at this with a goal of learning and living by God's grace. Let's really see what Jesus is teaching us. Let me give you three points. Here's the first one on your outline. What, what did the Old Testament teach regarding oaths and vows? Now here's what Jesus says in verse 33. Here's the context. Again, you have heard that it was said of those to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, you've got to know that because you know what? There are actually Christians that read this verse and they're, not, they're ripping it out of context going, oh, you can't say something profane. You can't say that word that is a swear word. Well, we're not talking about profanity. The Bible does talk about it. We're not talking about vulgarity. The Bible talks about it. We're talking about making promises. We're talking about oaths. This is what Jesus is talking about. And it was something very common in the Old Testament. It wasn't condemned. You know what I was taught as a little boy? It's still with me. I do this every time. I can't shake it. Probably a good thing that I can't. It was drilled into me by my pastors. Don't ever say, hey, tomorrow I'll see you. We'll play tennis. 
You always got to tack on if it's God's will. Man, it sounds cheesy after a while. But I don't know why. It's just ingrained in me. So if you're going to, it was, it was beaten to me. If you're going to say something, if you're going to make a promise, it's really a big deal to God. He really cares that we hold that promise high. So oath-taking, it wasn't condemned in the Bible. It wasn't even discouraged. It was held with careful integrity. So let me show you where, that, where the Bible does that. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. So listen, to swear, now we do this, by the way, right? Some of us do. I, I don't do it, and I would discourage you to, from doing this. But don't, you know, you can do this flippantly, or you can truly do it with integrity, but I think it's too difficult, too easy, rather, to do it flippantly. So I swear to God, that's very common. So what's it mean to swear to God? To swear to God's name, here's what you're doing. You are invoking his authority, and you're inviting his witness, and I'll go a little bit deeper into this, based on his worth and his power. Now, you don't swear to a rock. You don't swear to a leaf. You don't swear to a grub. You always swear to something greater than you. Hebrews is going to tell us this. Let me draw a couple more from the Old Testament. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now, I told you, this seems archaic, right? You're going to find out it's very relevant, very modern. Here's what Numbers says. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So in that day, in the Old Testament, it was extremely prevalent, very, very common to make an oath with these words, as the Lord lives, and then you roll out your oath. Well, Hebrews 6 says, and I alluded to this a moment ago, for people swear by something greater than themselves. You never ever, you, I mean, listen, even on the playground, even with little elementary kids, and they take their little oaths, right? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, that's ancient. But they still do it. They'll say, I swear to God. Listen, nobody ever makes an oath to something less than you. Even if you put your hand on the Bible in a legal oath, which you don't have to do anymore, it's something that is considered binding, something that's considered to have an authority over you. So Hebrews says, whenever you make an oath, you're swearing by something greater. And so when an oath was sworn, it invoked a person or a, a thing that was sacred, that would act as a witness, now listen, here's what it would do, to testify to your words and a judge against you if your promise was not kept. Now, very, very quickly, I have so wanted to do this in a wedding. I do a lot of weddings. They had an awesome Old Testament covenant oath-taking ceremony. They would take a bull and they would kill it, 
and they would slice it lengthwise and separate the pieces. And the two people making an oath would grab hands and they would walk through those pieces and all around them were witnesses to the covenant. And what they were saying to their witnesses and to God is if one of us does not keep this promise, then what was done to the bull should be done to that person. Man, I've so wanted to do this at a wedding. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be awesome? There would be no divorce. Ah, oh, listen, if any, I will pay somebody if they let me do that at their wedding. We'll cook it up and eat it at, at the reception. <laughs> Old Testament oaths invoked God's presence. So you got to get this. Engaged his participation as a witness and invited his punishment for disregarding it. These were serious things. Oaths were uttered for several reasons to resolve disputes. As the Lord lives, I did not move the boundary marker. Very common in the Old Testament. It would, they were used to seal agreements or covenants. They were, they were simply beautifully used to affirm the truthfulness of important declarations. And by the way, listen, look at me. God, God himself took oath. He even bound himself by himself. That's the greatest there is. The Old Testament required the oath taker to keep the promise with integrity in the same way that God does. And that's going to lead us to point number two, and you're going to find out now just what had gone wrong by the time of Jesus. So point number two, how did the scribes and the Pharisees distort oath-taking? Well, before we really dig into Matthew 5, let me just tell you about Matthew 15, because he's super clear in this. He explains it so clearly. Here's what the scribes and the Pharisees did. If you're new to the series, scribes are Jewish lawyers, religious lawyers. Pharisees are basically Jewish pastors. They are at the top echelon of Judaism, the Jewish religion. The people looked at them as being, that's the pinnacle of righteousness. You don't get more godly than that. And here's what Jesus says about the scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 15. For the sake of your traditions... The tradition, you have made void, you have emptied, hollowed out the word of God. You hypocrites, mask wearers. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So here's what they had done. They took the word of God, the Old Testament, and they had said, you know what? We need to build a wall around it. So nobody can distort it. Nobody can pervert it. No one can change it. So we're going to build a wall around it. And that wall is called the oral teaching. The oral law, which was all put into a book in 200 AD called the Mishnah. The oral law was their commentary, their teaching, their interpretation of the Old Testament. But what happened by the time of Jesus is they were so enamored by the oral law, the oral law had gotten so big, so weighty, that the word of God receded in the background. In other words, the trees and the wall around it were so thick, nobody knew the word of God anymore. No one really taught the word of God anymore. They were teaching all of these man-made interpretations called the traditions. And Jesus is bringing that and exposing them. 
You see, this is what sin does, and I want you to see this. By the way, not one of us are exempt from this. If you think you're not susceptible to this, well, then you're probably one that the enemy, the devil, can have his way with, because you must realize what sin does. Sin always works to move us to reject God's authority and establish our own. You've got to see this. I mean, even if you don't understand that, at least lodge it in your mind for future consideration. Sin will move you to say, you know what, God, I don't like what you're telling me to do. I really like a lot better what I want to do. And what I want to do will often win the day. And so our conduct springs forth from a heart of rebellion. It's cosmic treason. Sin is rebellion against God that produces an, another way to live, the way that we want to live. That's what sinful behavior is. So if you think that sin is just doing the things you should not do or not doing the things you ought to do, you haven't defined it deep enough. Really, what sin is, is that, but it's springing from a well, and that well is polluted, and it's corrupt. It's in your heart, it's in my heart, and that well is saying, God, I don't like your plan, and I don't like your will, and I don't like your commandments. I want to do it my way. That's what sin does. This is why gospel preaching can be so difficult. You know, I had people skip the last two sermons. I had people come to the first one and say, I ain't going back to the second one on divorce. I'm not going to let a pastor beat me up. Granted, I know there's pastors that have done terribly with the, with the whole subject of divorce and remarriage. But listen, this is not to be scared of. This is not to be feared. This is not to be dreaded, even when it hurts. Even when it does Hebrews 4 surgery all the way down like a sharp, double-edged scalpel, and it shows you the thoughts and the attitudes, and you've got to cry out, God, I am a sinner. I'm a man or a woman of unclean lips. That's sweet surgery, and his grace will be the anesthesia to endure the surgery. But I've got people that, you know what, if they don't like the topic, they'll skip the sermon. We shouldn't do that. That's why gospel preaching can be so difficult to sit under. It goes deep. It cuts deep. It's healing. See, the Sermon on the Mount revealed the feudal traditions of Judaism. It showed who the scribes and the Pharisees really were. Unrighteous men. And then he begins to show what true righteousness looks like. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, this is the exact key to the entire Sermon on the Mount. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So one of their traditions, one of their oral doctrines, their oral teachings, revolved around laws and oaths. Now listen, I would invite you to do this. Go on the internet sometime, write it down, you're never going to remember this. Write it down, go on the internet, and look up the Mishnah, M-I-S-H-N-A-H, and just key the search word oath or vows. And you will see just how incredibly complex, by the time of Jesus, were all of their rules about taking oaths and vows. And it's, it, it permeated into every sector of life. It's amazing, and it's ridiculous. 
Jewish teachers held truthfulness high. They all did. Jewish teachers said, hey, you've got to be a truth teller. They had sayings. Here's one of them. Four persons are shut out from the presence of God. The scoffer, the hypocrite, the liar, and the retailer of slander, the one who spreads gossip. They had another saying. The world stands fast on three things, on justice, on truth, and on peace. Truth was big for the Jewish people. There was one more saying and went like this, one who has given his word and who changes it is as bad as an idolater. And you remember, I've told you the last couple weeks that there were two schools of Jewish thoughts. One was from Rabbi Hillel, the other one was Rabbi Shemiel. Let me tell you about Rabbi Shemiel when it comes to oath-taking. They believed you must always, perpetually, without exception, tell the truth in everything no matter what cost it was to you, right? We would say that's awesome. Until a Shamil rabbi proselyte came to your wedding because they wrote this down. I'm not even making this up. This is true. If they found you not very pretty, bride, they wouldn't tell you you're pretty like everybody else in a customary wedding. They just wouldn't talk to you. They would avoid it. They were so rigidly adhering to truth that even if they couldn't tell you or pay you a compliment because they didn't feel it was real, they wouldn't even speak it. But there was a hidden world of deception in Judaism, and Jesus, he's about to expose it. Here's what he says in Matthew 23. I'm going to get to Matthew 5 in a moment. He says this in Matthew 23. Woe to you blind guides. You see it on the screen? If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. Remember, swears means oath-taking. But if anyone takes an oath by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. I'm telling you, they made all of these rules where an oath was binding and one wasn't. Where you could say it, but it didn't really matter if you keep it. That's the condition at the time of Jesus. They developed a way to make a promise and to spiritually justify not keeping it, even when they never intended to keep it in the first place. Now, you and I would think, this is ludicrous. This is ridiculous. These are the spiritually elites of the Jewish people. But it really doesn't apply to us. All right, just keep listening. Let's see if it applies to us. Let's get to the end of this. One rabbi taught that swearing an oath by Jerusalem, that wasn't binding. But if you swore that oath facing Jerusalem, now it is. So watch what they would do. You know what? I promise that I will be there for you. If anything bad happens to your land, Jerusalem's that direction, they would just tilt their body a little bit off angle. And now all of a sudden, hopefully not perceptible to that person, all of a sudden they say, you know what, I'm never going to be there for them, but it doesn't matter because I wasn't facing Jerusalem. It's non-binding. This is all what's happening. You see, what Jesus is condemning is equivalent to making a promise with your fingers crossed. And by the way, I'm at my son's final season soccer game, and I'm standing there, and here comes this little girl with her fingers crossed going, I've got my fingers crossed, I've got my fingers crossed, I don't really have to do that. It's, everybody's, they still do this on playgrounds. He's condemning what is equivalent to making a promise with your fingers crossed 
For that really was what the rabbis were doing. They were making promises in a non-binding way because they had little intention of fulfilling it. He said they taught that vows could be nullified by going to a fellow rabbi, and the rabbi would interview them, and the rabbi would ask questions and find out, did you know this was going to happen in your life when you took the oath? And if he was convinced that the person who took the oath didn't know, wasn't aware of the consequences, then the rabbi would pronounce the oath null and void. As if God's power had been invested in the rabbi. See, Psalm 15, 4 says, to the one who fears the Lord, keeps his oath even when it hurts. So look what Jesus says. Chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. What he is saying is this. They had mastered the art of taking oaths of created things that were not binding on them. So they can make all the promises they want and they were justified when they were not keeping them. Now to go a little bit deeper and then we're going to get to point three and we're going to really find if this relates to us. The scribes and the Pharisees, they made oath-taking a frivolous part of a conversation. Almost every conversation, they're promising this. They're going like, here's their, their, here's their popular phrases. By my beard, that's, one, that's the beginning of invoking an oath. Or may I never see the comfort of Jerusalem again. As long as they're not facing Jerusalem, as long as they're not making an oath with something sacred greater than them, it's non-binding. If they're making an oath by God's name, now it's binding, and they created the art of deception. All right, so point number three, and this is where the, actually this sermon gets interesting, I hope. That was pretty much to get us all familiar with what was going on. Here's the point that we really need to pay attention to. What does, God, what does Jesus mean for us? What does Jesus mean for his disciples? Now, there's a really funny named theologian. His name is Helmut Thielich. He was German. That says something so deeply profound that I put it up on the screen. Now, let me read it to you, and you can Google this. All you got to do is write down, if you're taking notes, a portion of this. Google it. You will find this quote. Here's what he said. Whenever I utter the formula, I swear to God... I am really saying, now I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsibility that normally overruns my speech. In fact, I am saying even more than this. I'm saying that people are expecting me to lie from the start. And just because they are counting on my lying, I have to bring up these big guns of oaths and words of honor. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to suggest to you that this is the prevalent notion in our modern day. People expect half-truths. Because when you find somebody 
that is absolutely a truth teller, and believe me, they're rare, but when you find them, they are starkly noticeable. They stand out from everybody. You quickly begin to trust them. You may not like them because they will tell you things you might not like, but you begin to trust them. And it's almost an immediately acquired trust because this is not the norm. They're a truth teller. But that ought to be every single Christian. And it's the job of the gospel to expose half-truths, which are full lies. And we must become truth-tellers. So whenever we feel we need to make an oath or a promise, let's put it in modern-day vernacular, need to make a promise, and we invoke a vow to it, well, here's what we're doing. Are you hearing this? Here's what we're doing. We've left our reliance on our character and our integrity and try to use an outward vehicle to prove it. I've noticed in the last several years, I've almost, by God's grace, gotten this completely out of my language because I have worked and worked and worked to stop saying this. When I really want somebody to know something, I have a habit of saying, to tell you the truth, such and such happened. And it finally dawned on me does that mean most of everything else I'm saying is really not true? Why do I feel I need to, tell, to use that phrase? I should never need to use that phrase because what should come out of my mouth from my heart should be pure and unadulterated truth. And if I really believe that I'm telling the truth, I don't need to doctor it up. I don't need to invoke anything. I don't need to bring as... Felix says, the, the heavy guns to bear, it's just me speaking truth. I've got a ways to go, but this is what, by God's grace, I'm getting to. To the Quakers, by, ironically, by the way, Thomas Penn was a Quaker. The Quakers have taken this teaching from Matthew 5, and they have refused to put their hand on the Bible to swear an oath in a legal courtroom. In fact, I think, if I understand it right, it was because of the Quakers' refusal to do that that now, if you're an atheist, or if you don't want to do that because of your belief and your convictions, you now make an affirmation of the truth. You don't have to put your hand on the Bible any longer. John Piper explains that the tradition of swearing an oath with a hand on the Bible began at a time where the Bible was a universally held treasure of sacred holiness and that only the most hardened of hearts would ever put their hand on the Bible, swear an oath, and then lie. It was the investing into an object, the authority to bind you to tell the truth. I mean, little kids do this. They still do this. You swear on your father's grave, you're telling me the truth? You swear to God, you put your hand on the Bible, and you, that's the big one. You, you put your hand on the Bible, and you do that? And then if they know, well, I'm not really telling the truth, and they've got some spiritual upbringing, they'll say, well, I'm not doing that. Jesus said, listen, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, your head, none of them are endowed with this authority. Only God has that authority. 
And you should not need any created thing to bind you to the truth. You should realize, and by the way, this is the absolute hardest part of the sermon. You ready? You, you ready for this? You got to kind of do what God told Job to do. Gird up your loins because this is a tough part. You ready? You and I, Christian, we've got to have the doctrine, the theology, to realize that every single word we speak is before God. And here's what the Bible says. On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. You will never utter a word that God is not listening with rapt attention. Will it come from truth from your heart? Or will it be mixed with falsehood? He doesn't want it mixed with falsehood. He only wants truth. And he is remaking our hearts. He is teaching us to be truth tellers. And God is our witness. You don't need to bind any created thing. God automatically listens. So Jesus says, takes us deeper into this command. He says, let, let what you say, verse 37, be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now let me just say this quickly. Is he then saying you should never take an oath? Well, if that is what he's saying, then the Apostle Paul is a great sinner because he took several of them. That's not really what he's saying. He's saying don't take an oath that you do not plan on keeping. Because that's what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. And don't take an oath, and then the consequences are more than you thought they would be, so you justify why you don't need to keep it, and you make up all of these legal dealings in your mind. Don't do that. Let your yes be yes, your no, no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Why? Because God wants honesty from his people all the way to the very core of who they are, way beyond oaths, way beyond vows and promises. We are to be promise keepers. How ironic that this follows the section on divorce and remarriage, isn't it? But even deeper, now listen, ready? Here's where it gets relevant and modern. Do you laugh at a joke that you really didn't get, but you're too embarrassed to admit it. So you just laugh. That's not honesty. That's not a joke to God. He sees that, and he says, you could be better than that. You are my disciple, and I want truth in the inner being. When someone asks you in a, in a conversation, if you understand what they just told you, and, and you really don't understand it, I do this. For fear of looking stupid, do you tell them that you understand it, knowing that you'll just go figure it out later? That's not truth. When we're confronted for a wrong, do we take ownership of all that we're guilty of? Or do we, do we begin the familiar bob and weave and counter jab? It's really God and the woman you put here with me. That's not truth. That's what Adam did. Parents, when you see your children alter or shade the truth, even in tiny, tiny ways, listen, do not let it pass. I will tell you what Samuel Johnson said. You do not know where deviation from truth will end. You do not know where deviation from truth 
will end. Expect and ask your children to be radically truthful. Are we believable when we speak? Is our integrity such that we do not need to resort to means and methods to convince others that what we say is true? Do you just simply resign yourself to speak the truth and let what happens, happen? Christian, we must keep the truth even when it hurts. Now, I told you about the Penn brothers and Logan and the Lenape Indians. Man, they got the wrong end of the deal. It's now September 19th, 1737. Starting from modern Wrightstown, PA, Bucks County, below here, three colonists began a walk that would determine just how much land the Lenape would sell to the Penn brothers and Logan. And they were accompanied by three Indians as a witness, and they began the walk. And what the, what the Lenape did not know, however, and this is well documented in history, was that Logan and the Penn brothers had already mapped the land that they wanted. It went far west, all the way up north to Jim Thorpe, at an angle almost to New York, and down the Delaware, a little bit on the western side into New Jersey. That's the land that they wanted. And they had already mapped it out. In fact, they had teams out marking the path, clearing the underbrush so that they could run, not walk, run this route and take way more land than the Lenape was prepared to give. In fact, three of them, I told you there were three colonists that did this, they had trained for months. They had people ferrying them across streams and rivers. The first to drop out from exhaustion, his name was Solomon Jennings, who covered 19 miles. He couldn't make it another mile. Actually, I think he died after that. James Yates dropped out. He's the second guy from exhaustion. He made it to the second day, leaving one more colonist, Edward Marshall, and he covered 65 miles in 18 hours. Pretty extraordinary back then. And the deceit of the, tre the treaty, the walking purchase, swindled so much land from the Lenape Indians that eventually they, they had to migrate west to the Ohio and Delaware Valleys of the Ohio Valley, and they eventually joined forces with the French and came back and exacted bloody revenge on all of this area. Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no, Anything more than this comes from evil. Christian, let me end with this. We must be truth-tellers all the time. And when you say something, I just had this happen to me. Somebody, I was in a conversation with somebody, and as I'm speaking, I'm realizing I'm maneuvering the conversation to make me look better than I am. And while I'm talking, I couldn't quite stop. And while I'm talking, God is convicting me. And I'm going, God, why am I doing this? Well, why I'm doing this is because there's something in my heart that the gospel needs to redeem. And I'm pretty sure there's something in your hearts as well. This is where we encourage each other to be truth tellers. Amen? 
Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray.